Well, it's a joy to bring God's Word to you again this evening, and I invite you to open your Bibles to James 1 this evening. You could say that what we have tonight in its simplest form is a pastoral encouragement or exhortation to read your Bible. Does that sound simple enough? If you're anything like me, I need to hear that often. Need to be reminded of the treasure that we have in God's Word. And I need my will to be addressed that I need to be in God's Word and take it seriously and let it constantly be at work to change me. And in that vein, too, I'd also just like to mention if you haven't noticed already on the website, under, uh, I think it's under Life at Truth, one of the first menu options, uh, there are some Bible reading plans that Pastor Don has put together, and uh, there's a little explanation uh, about those plans, and uh, they're, they're, I say plans, uh, plural, because there are several plans for you to look at and consider what might be a good fit for your stage in life uh, to help you have exposure to the whole revelation of God. And we need to have that consistent, repeated exposure to the whole revelation of God. Uh, It's so critical for us to read all the words of God and to see the harmony Uh, of His Word. And so if you haven't uh, had the opportunity to look at that resource yet, uh, I'd encourage you to take some time uh, here toward the end of the week and and look at that and uh, see if if you haven't already uh, dug in on a a reading plan, see if there's something there that would be uh, a blessing for you to pursue. And, you know, just to extend that thought uh, a little bit, I was thinking preparing in the last few minutes, just getting my thoughts ready for this evening. You take the, a Bible reading plan and you read through the Scriptures consistently on an annual basis, and then take the work that Pastor Don did this past year on building a Christian mind and master that material, right? you, you are going to be far ahead of where most seminary students are. Um, and I mean that seriously. I'm not, I'm not joking about that. The, the quality and the content uh, of that series is, is so masterful and so important in the themes, the scriptural themes that it brings together, that as you sink your mind into that truth, and master it and let it really construct your thinking processes, all right, you're going to see over time, not immediately, but over time, uh, your, your thinking changing because it is building a Christian mind. You're building a mind that reflects Christ. And uh, so just a, a word of encouragement to continue to let those themes uh, circulate uh, in your mind and in your understanding. So with that introduction and that said, we're looking at James 1 tonight, and our text is from verses 16 through 27. And there's so much in this text, I'm, I'm not going to look at every single word, but uh, just draw out the big themes that James is giving to us here this evening. But let's go ahead and pick up reading there in verse 16 after James encourages those that he is writing to to remain steadfast under trial and to have their view of God corrected in the first 16 verses. He says this, beginning in verse 16, "'Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers.'" Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, 
Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets that he, what, what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Well, James is likely the earliest of the New Testament documents that we have. James is the Lord's brother. We find him in Acts 15 overseeing the Jerusalem council as a question came up about how Gentiles should be required to live uh, in light of the, of the Jewish regulations. And we see within that context that James is a very wise pastor. He has a pastor's heart. He knows the Scripture. He's well acquainted with the Old Testament, and he's able to take the Scriptures and bring them to bear on practical issues uh, that were facing the church. And when we come to this epistle, we see that taking place again as James addresses saved Jews that have spread out because of persecution. Go back to Acts 8 and you see the persecution and the spread of Christians because of that persecution. He's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And so these are relatively new believers, new followers of Christ. And they're, they're facing some of the hard realities of following Christ in a fallen world. And, you know, it's interesting that probably the first New Testament book begins with, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing." You think those Christians who were being persecuted, who had left everything to flee the persecution and who had left everything to follow Christ, had some questions about how this following Christ was working out? And James immediately addresses it, and he is helping those believers identify that a true faith True faith is a maturing faith, and a ma part of a maturing faith is that it remains steadfast in all circumstances, even in trials. And so he says, you know, when you face those trials in a very gentle way, not a flippant way, right? He's not minimizing the, the, the pain and the distress and the agony of the, of, of the trials, but he says, you make a mathematical calculation. That's the, the idea of that term, count it all joy. You, you look at the trial, and you look at the God who is over the trial, and you say that equals count it joy. That equals joy because God is working in my life to fill out what is lacking. And so stay under the trial like Pastor Green preached a week or two ago, stay under the trial as long as God has you there and let God's perfect work be carried out because He knows what's lacking. You don't. He knows your heart better than you know your heart. And that's where James begins his letter. 
And, you know, then the question immediately comes up, well, we know that's really hard. How do I, how do I endure under these trials? Verse 5, well, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously. And then he fills out more and more of a doctrine of God from verses 5 through 15. And so James, as he begins the epistle, he, he helps the believe, believers understand that a maturing faith will remain steadfast in all circumstance. A maturing faith will exalt God by asking God for wisdom in the midst of those trials, by avoiding various pitfalls like doubting, like dissatisfaction, and like being deceived. And it will exalt God by abiding in the absolutes of who God is, that He is generous and that He is kind and that He is good and that He is in no wise evil and that everything that comes from Him is a good gift, even the trials, even the sufferings. And maturing faith takes those truths and abides in them and exalts and magnifies God in that way. But... The reality of living life in the flesh and in the world is that we, we look around us and we look through the lens of our own perspective and we're very quickly deceived. And so there's another aspect that is critical to a maturing faith, and that is abiding in God's Word. Maturing faith abides in God's Word. How, how, do I, how do I continue to constantly calculate it a joy when God brings trials? How do I continually seek to exalt God by avoiding the pitfalls of, of deception and doubting and discontent when my heart is so deceptive, when there's so many pressures around me? How, how does that happen? And the answer is, Abide in the Word of God. Your eyes deceive you. Your perception is usually wrong, just to be blunt. We need, we need reoriented by the truth, by the unchanging truth of God's Word. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 gives us this flattering view of the heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So Jeremiah establishes our heart is deceitful, but God knows our heart. He knows us through and through. And so his revelation, his word is a revelation of himself, and it's a revelation of us, of what's in our lives and in our hearts. And so viewing Viewing trials through the lens of our deceptive heart will make it impossible to choose joy. It will make it impossible to avoid shortcuts when we want to get out of the trial as quick as we can with whatever means necessary or available. And those two elements are two elements of what maturing faith does. But our heart wants to move us away from that. And so as a wise pastor, James with wise pastoral counsel, deals with the internal realities that cause spiritual deficiencies. He tells us to abide in God's Word. So this evening from the text that we've read from verses 16 through 27, we're going to look at three main points of abiding in God's Word. First, we're going to see the enemy of abiding in God's Word the enemy of abiding in God's Word. Then we're going to see the essentials of abiding in God's Word. And then third, the evidences of abiding in God's Word. The enemy, the essentials, and the evidences of abiding in God's Word. So let's begin just by noting the enemy of abiding in God's Word, and I've kind of already alluded to it. But in the passage I read, there's a word appearing in our English translations three times throughout the passage. In verse 16, where we started, there's a command, do not be 
deceived. And then in verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And in verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. The enemy, as noted here in James' counsel, the enemy to abiding in God's Word is a self-deception. A self-deception. Our hearts are so deceitful that in the deception of our hearts, we will think we're fine and move away from abiding in God's Word. And we'll fill out how that happens as we move along. But I, I want to point out, as we can consider that the enemy defined, that in those three words, or the three appearances of deceived, there's actually a different Greek word behind each one of those words. And I'm not getting technical, I'm just pointing out something that you don't see in the English. You know, so someone... So sometimes I consider a little bit of Greek is just like putting a little bit of color. It doesn't change the essence of what you're seeing, but it adds a little bit more texture to it. And so James uses three terms to warn against self-deception. Uh, the, the first one is the idea of being misled or caused to err when he says, do not be deceived. Don't be, don't be taken in. Don't be misled. And where he goes next, he reminds the, the believers that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights and, and so on. So where is it that he's concerned about these believers being misled. Well, if they're under trial, if they're under a long trial, you know, the tendency can be to think, you know, is God really good? Is He really in control? And, and if we're not careful very subtly, if we lean on our own understanding, we can, we can subtly shift we can subtly be led astray, be led into error, be deceived through a growing root of bitterness in our own heart. I thought following God was supposed to bring blessing. I didn't think it was supposed to be this. This is really hard, Lord. Right? And if we keep thinking like that, our thoughts will lead us astray from the reality that every good gift and every perfect gift, including suffering, including trials, including adversity and opposition, is from God. And that God is good. He's always good. And that there is no variation or shadow due to change. He is good to us. He is good in His posture toward us, in His generosity toward us, in His kindness to us. And the ultimate, the ultimate evidence of that in verse 18, of His own will, He brought us forth. How did you come to Christ? Because God willed it. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Right? When you start to question the goodness of God, where does, where does James take you? He takes you right back to your salvation and to the fact that you had nothing to do with that. You were dead in your trespasses and sin, but God, out of His goodness and His kindness and His generosity to you in Jesus Christ, of His own will, He caused you to be born again. He's good. Don't be deceived. The second word or appearance of deception is in verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And in that use, the, the word rendered has the idea of to reason falsely or incorrectly. 
a false line of reasoning. And you could say it, it could be, it would be in contrast to verse 2 when there's a right kind of reasoning, count it all joy. Now, don't be deceived. Don't deceive yourself by being, being a hearer of, of the word without being a doer of the word. You're, you're reasoning incorrectly, and, and as we'll find out in a little bit, you're reasoning incorrectly about your own condition. You're looking at the Word of God and you're reading it as how good you look. And that's not what it's saying. Don't be deceived. Don't be a hearer without it being a doer. And then in the third appearance, in verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. The idea behind the word translated deceives there is the idea of to be seduced into error. That in some way something has gripped your affections, your, your eyes, and you have been seduced into error. You've been taken in sensually into error. In the context, when you think about what he's saying here, if anyone is religious and does not bridle his tongue... Right, that makes sense. Paul warns in Ephesians chapter 5, you know, if you're walking in the love of Christ, then you need to put aside coarse joking and sensual language. It doesn't go together. And so someone who claims to be religious but engages in all kinds of talk with an unbridled tongue has been seduced and deceived. So the enemy defined is in those three terms of being deceived, and that grows from bitterness, that grows from self-righteousness, that grows from being seduced, the sensuality within our heart. And you know, as you read those, and you know, we're just starting to get into this already, already, if we're, if we're thinking scripturally and thinking honestly, we're thinking, wow, yeah, James knows about the human heart. And of course, it's James under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, writing inspired Word of God. But within this passage, there's not only those terms that define this self-deception, there's also descriptions. So how does this come out? Well, in verses 16 through 18, again, with, with the person who is, who is being warned against the deception of a false view of God, the danger is that that person is double-minded. James warned about that earlier. Don't be double-minded as you ask God for wisdom. All right. I need wisdom, but I don't entirely trust God's goodness. That's being double-minded. Being self-deceived is also expressed by being reactionary. Look at verse 18 or verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And you know, when you see the Bible warning us against something, telling us to not do something, that you can pretty much assume that that's going to be the natural direction of your heart. Otherwise, God wouldn't tell us to not do it or to stop doing it. God doesn't waste his words like that. He understands our heart and, and our, our tendency, especially under trial, especially when there's pain and there's opposition, our tendency is to be quick to speak and quick to anger, quick to react, and definitely slow to hear. Right? We, we, want, to, we want to answer everyone else, else's problems as a defense mechanism against our own personal failings. There's a, there's a frenzy that can stir up in our souls trying to, trying to solve the problem. And it's an evidence of being self-deceived, being reactionary. You know, we don't coordinate the openings and closings of the service, but 
Sid nailed it. Wait. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. Wait, I say, on the Lord. And that wasn't from Isaiah 64. I don't know. I can't even remember the reference of what I just said. But throughout all Scripture, you have this constant theme that comes up. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. He's good. Someone self-deceived is reactionary. They're quick to speak, quick to anger, slow to hear. Someone self-deceived is also a fantasizer. I don't even know if that's a word, but whatever. Maybe it'll be memorable. They live in a fantasy world. And this is the idea in verses 20 through 22 and 20 through 24 is the person who looks at the Word, looks in the mirror, and doesn't take into account what he sees. When I was in high school, my youth pastor gave you know, an unforgettable picture of this. He said it's like someone that that wakes up in the morning and there's the, the trickle of dried drool down from the corner of his mouth and he looks at the mirror and says, I look fine and walks away and doesn't do anything about it. No, you don't look fine. That's the problem. But a person who is self-deceived looks at the Word of God and walks away and says, I'm good, I don't need to... I don't need to change anything. Moves to the next thing without taking to heart what God has said, what he's been confronted with in the Word of God, or, or worse, looks at Scripture as like, well, I look at Scripture and I look at me and I look pretty good. Folks, that's a fantasy world. It's not real. Someone who is deceived is also out of control. Out of control. There's no bridle. There's no filter. There's no sense of what is fitting. There's just a spewing out of whatever comes to mind and whatever comes to mouth. And sometimes you wonder if it even went to the mind before it came out of the mouth. And James says, verse, again, verse 26, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, that person's religion is worthless. And he'll fill that out in chapter 3 when he goes into depth about the tongue. But... But true religion puts a bridle on the tongue. A self-deceived religion thinks it has a lot to say. Pursuing true religion will shut your mouth. Romans 3, Paul tells us that the law is given so that every mouth will be closed. So that you're going to stand in silence and falling on your feet, eating dust before a holy, righteous God before whom you are nothing. A self-deceived person is not that way. So the enemy of abiding in God's Word, what is it that so often keeps us from going to the Word of God with a heart that wants to receive the Word of God, whether it's in our personal time and pursuit of the Word of God or hearing the preaching of the Word of God, the problem most of the time is right here. My own heart, my own self-deceived heart. And so, again, James says, Don't be deceived. It's a command. Stop being deceived. Understand how your heart works and how you can be deceived. That you can allow bitterness to creep in, that you can allow self-righteousness to keep creep in, and that you can be that you can be entangled in the sensuality of this world. So we understand that we have to put aside certain things. Well, let's go on and consider the essentials of abiding in God's Word. The essentials of abiding in God's Word. As we're transitioning, just again to rephrase, how do I know if I'm self-deceived? Well, I miscalculate my trials. I minimize the God who is over my trials. And I maintain a self-satisfied view of my spiritual condition. But instead of being self-deceived, we need to be in God's Word. And the essentials of God, God's Word are very, very simple. Right? It's so elementary, but it's so convicting. Every time I come to this passage, hear God's Word, receive God's Word, 
do God's word. Hear God's word, receive God's word, and do God's word. Look again at verse 18 or 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger. Now, James doesn't say be quick to hear the word, but within the context, it's pretty clear that that's what he's talking about. For instance, in verse 18, he just referred to the fact that of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. And then he's going to go on in verse 21 to say, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Going on then to say, be doers of the word and not hearers only. So when he says, be quick to hear by implication of the context, he means quick to hear the word of God. Now, Yes, husbands, it's a good idea for us to be quick to hear our wives. Not discounting that. Not discounting the general counsel. You need to be quick to hear. But in this context, the emphasis, what James is specifically instructing us about, is to be quick to hear God's Word. Give attention to God's Word and put aside all of those things that would compromise your ability to hear the Word of God. He's dealing with our eyes and our ears. And it's interesting, is it not, that when he says, be quick to hear, he's addressing our will. He's, making a, he's, he's giving us a command. It's a choice. Whether or not you hear God's word and take God's word in, it is a choice. It's a matter of obedience. It's an exercise of restraint. And I say that because of what surrounds that. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So if I'm quick to hear God's word, then I'm going to be restraining my words. I'm going to be restraining my anger. One commentator, Alec Motyer, makes this incredibly wise observation. The great talker is rarely a great listener. And never is the ear more firmly closed than when anger takes over. Exposure to the Word is a matter of obedience. It's a matter of restraint as we give heed to what God says. I'm going to be uncomfortably vulnerable and candid here for a moment. When you think about approaching God's Word... And think about the discipline of approaching God's Word. You know, it's not easy. It's not easy. And as a professing believer for for decades, there were a number of years where I really struggled to to have a faithful, regular time of just getting into the Word of God. Right? It wasn't an easy habit to develop at all. In fact, I probably didn't develop a very consistent habit until I was uh, a year or so into pastoral ministry. And, you know, up until that point, I would do different things here and there and usually ended up going through the Proverbs again. You know, 31 Proverbs, 31 days of the month was a good place to start. But as I was in, began in, in pastoral ministry... I quickly realized that to survive, I needed the Word of God. And I drew on the words of pastors that I had been under for many years previously who said and made a big point to tell those of us who were pursuing ministry, look, you cannot have your only time in the Word of God when you're studying to bring the Word of God to others. You need to be being fed by the Word of God. They drilled that into us. And he was right. And so, by God's grace, as the Lord worked His grace in my life to develop 
that routine, that habit, which is still at times a struggle. You know, don't think that, that it's every day and never miss a day. It doesn't happen that way, all right? Pursue that, but it doesn't, it doesn't always happen. But the joy of reading through God's Word repeatedly, year after year after year, the results and the timeliness of God's revelation in His providence is incredible. It's incredible. And, and I'm saying this, again, just as, as, a, as a matter of exposing my own weakness and how difficult it is and has been at times, but at the same time to encourage you to keep on pursuing it. And one, one of the methods that, I, that I've used over the years is a, is a method where I'm reading in four different places in the Scripture each day. And so just by way of testimony, just by way of testimony this morning, uh, a couple of, you know, where I was in Scripture was in, let's see, Genesis 24. So Genesis 24 is about Abraham sending a servant to find a, a wife for his son. So I'm reading through that, and, you know, it, there's a lot there. It's a long chapter. But as I'm reading through that, you know, there's, there's some encouragement because I have three daughters that they won't be getting married for probably 30 years at least. But every now and then it crosses my mind, you know, who's the idiot that they're going to marry? And what do you have in that chapter? Well, you have God working His providence and bringing... Rebecca for Isaac. And as you go on, you find out that they were both fleshly, but God provided the right person. God provided the person He intended. And then I turn over to Nehemiah 13. Wow. Nehemiah, man, he was a leader. And what do I find from Nehemiah 13 as the book of Nehemiah closes? Well, I find that spiritual leadership is very aggressive about removing the corruption among God's people, like throwing out the furniture and other things. Go ahead and read it sometime, and you'll find out how aggressive it is. You know, I needed that. I needed to be encouraged that there are times as a leader you have to be aggressive in removing the corruption among the people of God without apology. I needed to hear that from God's Word. And I turn over to Matthew 23. What's Matthew 23? Woe to you Pharisees, hypocrites! Here's Jesus strongly addressing religious people I need my heart exposed. I need to understand my tendencies to be a hypocrite. I need to see the strength of Christ addressing people who claim to be religious but have no life to back it up. And then at the end of chapter 23, what does Jesus do? He's weeping over Jerusalem. Woe to you hypocrites. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem the strength and compassion of Jesus. And then Acts 23, what do we find there? We find Paul being threatened by those same religious leaders that Jesus spoke the woes about. In fact, they're, making, they're trying to make a death threat on on Paul's life, and he has no clue, right? There are, there's Paul, he's preaching the gospel, he's establishing churches, he's dealing with sin within the churches, and there are people outside the churches that are whispering and planning and plotting to overthrow the work of God. And guess what? It doesn't work because God has a little boy who overhears the plot and he goes to a self-serving political leader and says, you know what? There's a plot going on. The self-serving political leader says, all right, I'm going to give you a whole police escort to make sure Paul survives. Doesn't matter what people say. 
doesn't matter how tongues run, it doesn't matter what kind of opposition there is to the work of God, Christ will build his church. Christ will protect his people. I needed to hear that today. Here's the point. Hear God's word. Hear God's word. When you open God's word, God blesses that over time. He gives you exactly what you need. He, he strengthens your soul. He, he causes you to be convicted in your own heart of your own sin. Right? The whole gamut. But it begins with hearing the word of God. If you're not opening the word of God, all those things don't happen. If you're not coming to gather, and I'm preaching to the choir because you're here, right? If you're not coming to gather, the important things that are supposed to happen at church can't happen. You have to hear the word of God. Be quick to hear. Make it the priority. Make it, make it the most important thing of your life. And ultimately, we have an example in our Lord Jesus, don't we? In Isaiah 50, in verse 4, speaking of Jesus prophesying about Christ, we're told, Jesus, Jesus says, You awakened my ear morning by morning, and I was not disobedient. Jesus himself was attentive to his Father and the Word of God during his whole life on earth. And if that was the testimony of Jesus, how much more ought it be of those who follow him and profess to love him? Hear, hear God's word. Well, James goes on, and as he instructs us about hearing the word of God, He says, be slow to anger. Why? Because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. There's another aspect. You know, just hearing, just letting the sound waves hit your eardrum and go to your, go to your brain, just allowing the eyes to run across the Scripture... There's a lot of people who do that and nothing happens. There's no eternal good. There's nothing happening in their soul. You need to receive God's word. And so James has, has challenged us about our eyes and ears. You, you hear God's word. You, you read God's word. But then now he's moving to the aspect of the mind and heart. You receive it. You receive it by, by dealing with your soul, by dealing with your heart. The Word of God is already implanted. Look at what he says in verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted Word, which is able to save your souls. And the idea that he's expressing here is, is a continuation from what you are. Back at the end of, of verse 18, you've already been brought forth by the Word of truth. So the Word of God is already implanted in you. And as you continue to follow the Lord and follow the Word of God, that Word of God is doing a continual work of salvation, not in the sense that you're getting saved over and over and over again, but in the sense of Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, where Paul says, "...work out your salvation with fear and trembling." For it is God who works in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. And so how do we work out our salvation? Well, it's as the implanted word is working in us. That's the only way you work out your salvation. Folks, you don't work out your salvation apart from the word of God. It doesn't even make sense. So you receive the word of God 
And again, that's the main verb there in verse 21, receive with meekness the implanted word of God. And the idea, the idea that, that James is expressing is that you value the word of God, you grasp the word of God out of the conviction that it's right. Whatever God says is right. Whatever God says is true. Whatever God says, I bow to. In Matthew eleven fourteen, Jesus is addressing the Pharisees and he says, look, you would have known who John the Baptist was if you had received the word. You knew the word, but you didn't receive it. Receive the word. And how do we do that? Well, you know, he tells us, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. The way that you receive God's word is that you approach God's word in a spirit of repentance, of, of repentance of the new manifestation of fleshly desires in your life. Right? I don't come to the word with a presupposition that I'm okay. I come to the word with a presupposition that I need to be convicted, that I need God to expose who I am, and that I need to turn away from that. And I need to put away those things. Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. And he's, you know, he's talking to believers. He's like, this is the tendency of your heart. Again, Motyer makes this comment about our Christian experience that our experience is to be one of constantly working hoe in hand against the fertility of the old nature. The old nature is really fertile. The weeds keep growing, and we have to consistently be working against it. We develop meekness. We repent, and we develop meekness. Again, verse 21, receive with meekness the implanted word. You put away filthiness, and you receive with meekness the implanted word. And the idea here is, the, is contrasted to closing the ear through anger. On the one hand, we can shut out the word of God because we're angry and we're reacting to God and to others around us, but no, that's not how we receive the word. We, we receive it with a temper of spirit in which we accept all his dealings with us as good. And we, accept, and we accept all his dealings with us as good without disputing. That's what meekness looks like. Receive with meekness the word of God. And then we assess then the daily manifestation of the new fruits of salvation. The implanted word which is able to save your souls. What new fruits is God bringing forth in my life to the praise of his glory? We receive the word of God. And then we do the word of God. Verse 22, but be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, be no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Do God's word. So we... We use our eyes and ears to hear God's word, to take it in. We deal with our mind and heart as we receive God's word, and then God's word affects what we do with our hands, our feet, our eyes, our ears, our mind. It affects the whole person. It changes us. And a failure to be a doer of God's word proves that we are self-deceived people. James puts a contrast here. Look at what he says in verse 23, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man that looks intently at his natural face. So the person who hears and is not a doer does look at the word of God. And then look down at verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, be no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his, in his doing. So what, what's the similarity between both of those? They both look at the Word of God. 
but it's what happens after they look at the Word of God. The self-deceived man looks with prejudice that the law will show how good he is. And so he looks and says, yeah, I'm right. I look pretty good. And he walks away. Whereas the one who is a hearer and a receiver and a doer looks at the Word of God and says, oh, oh, wretched man that I am. Who will save me? Ah, oh, I thank I thank the Lord Jesus Christ. And oh Lord, how can I now show my love to you by walking in obedience to your commands to the law of liberty? Right? The self-deceived man comes to Scripture and then he continues to live life how he wants to live life. The doer of the word. The doer of the word is a man who says, my life needs to grow in its conformity to the law of God. My life needs to grow in its conformity to the way that God has designed life to be lived. And so a failure to to do God's word proves self-deception, but blessing accompanies obedience. Look at the end of verse 25. The one who looks into the law of liberty and perseveres, he perseveres through trial, he perseveres through opposition, he perseveres through adversity, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And the blessing is that you're living life according to God's plan. You're allowing God's law to to change your view of life and to change how you carry out life. Again, quoting Ma, your true freedom is the opportunity and the ability to give expression to what we really are. We are truly free when we live the life appropriate to those who are created in the image of God. God created us to glorify Him. Sin, sin destroyed, destroyed our, our desire to glorify Him. And through salvation, We're restored to fellowship with God so that we can pursue a life to the glory of his name. That's what it looks like to be human. To be human looks like obeying God. To be human looks like living for God. Anything else is subhuman. Anything that defies the Ten Commandments is subhuman. Anything that defies loving God with your entire being is subhuman. Anything that defies loving your neighbor as you love yourself is subhuman. That's not how you were designed to live. The closer that your life aligns with God's moral law, ultimately, the happier you'll be. Blessed, blessed is the one who is a doer. He will be blessed in his doing. It's very hypocritical, isn't it? To say, you know, how, you know how powerful God's Word is? It brought me forth. It gave me new life. But now I'm going to live life how I want to live it. No, 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 no. The Word of truth brought you forth. It gave you new life, and it's by that same Word that you then live. It would be like a pilot saying, you know what, the laws of silence, science produced this great plane, but the laws of science don't apply to how I fly it. How would you like to be in that plane? Right? It's just as irrational for us to say, I've been brought forth by the word of truth, but I don't like what God's word says here, so I'm going to live life my own way. No, no, no. You're like a person. You're like a self-satisfied, self-deceived person who looks in the mirror and then turns away and says, I'm, I'm fine. The essentials of abiding in God's word, hear God's word, receive God's word, and do God's word. And then finally, what are the evidences of abiding in God's word? We see that in verses 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, that that person's religion is worthless. 
Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. There are three evidences in, the, in, in this passage. First of all, a controlled tongue. Again, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. That corresponds to the word of truth. We've been brought forth by the word of truth, and so the word of truth now dictates what our words are. We allow God's word to bridle our tongue. And James will expand this in chapter 3 when he talks about the struggle it is to control our tongue. But a controlled tongue and pursuing the bridling of the tongue is an evidence of the word of God abiding in us. The tongue and the heart, says Ma'ir, are linked so that the tongue is an accurate index of what we are at the core of our persons. If our words are casting suspicion on others or slandering others instead of submissive or silence, then that shows what's in our heart. If our words are filled with sensuality versus serving others, that shows what we view people as. We view them as objects, not others that are created in the image of God. An uncontrolled tongue nullifies a profession of religion. If he does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart, and that person's religion is worthless. The second evidence of abiding in God's Word is a compassion for the helpless. A compassion for the helpless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. If we've been brought forth of the word of truth, we are the objects of God's compassion to us in Jesus Christ. And so we gladly extend compassion to those around us who are in true need, who are helpless themselves. And again, James is going to fill this out in chapter 2, and it corresponds to God's work as He saved us. And then finally, the third evidence of abiding in God's Word is a commitment to personal holiness and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This corresponds to being the first fruits of God's creatures, he saved us from sin. Now we're salt and light in the world, and we seek to live a life that reflects the values of the God who saved us and the mind of the Christ whom we follow. And James will fill that out in chapter 4 as well. So the evidences of abiding in God's Word, a controlled tongue, a compassion for the helpless, and a commitment to personal holiness. As we bring this together, abiding in God's Word ultimately produces a habit of repentance and rejoicing that Christ is your complete righteousness, right? If we're reading God's Word and exposed to God's Word in a way that is not self-deceived, we're going to see our own sinfulness, we're going to see our constant need of Christ, and we're going to constantly be rejoicing in His finished work. We're not going to be like the Galatians who began at the cross, who began in the Spirit, and then thought, you know what, we can work this out on our own. No, we keep coming back to the cross. We keep coming back to Christ. We seek to please Him while being aware of our own helplessness apart from His Spirit at work within us. So are you abiding in God's Word? The enemy of abiding in God's Word is self-deception. The essentials of abiding in God's Word are to hear God's Word, to receive God's Word, and to do God's Word. And the evidences of abiding in God's Word are a controlled tongue, a compassion for the helpless, and a commitment to personal holiness. Well, I pray that God will increase our appetite and desire for His Word, for the Word that is living and powerful. 
as we seek to please him, and as we seek to love one another and carry out our calling as Christians, waiting for the return of Christ. Lord, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you that your word is truth. And we thank you that what your word says about your word is truth. And that what your word says about our hearts is truth. Lord, we are, we are so blessed to have in the midst of a world that is so confused and lives according to so many uh, subjective non-realities. We're so blessed to, to have the word of God and, and to have the work of Christ in us to, to take up the word of God as it is uh, the, the reality of what life is, the reality of what eternity is. And so, Lord, we pray that you would continue to cause us to love your law, to delight in your law, and to meditate on these things day and night. We love you, and we thank you for the time together this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com, teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.